Welcome to the Cops, Criminals, and Christ podcast, where we will hear interesting stories and unique perspectives about the work of cops, the world of criminals, and how faith plays a role in the lives of both. Dale Sutherland was an undercover cop and a pastor for many years, and will share interesting stories and perspectives and interview guests. I'm your host, his daughter, Kristen Crew. Come join us to learn more about these powerful forces and how they shape the lives of people just like you. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Cops, Criminals, and Christ podcast with Dale Sutherland, Mm -hmm. and I will be the host, Kristen Crew. I actually am his daughter, and so uh, the tables are turning where my whole life he's gotten to ask me questions and tell me things, and today you're in the hot seat and I get to (laughs) ask you questions and (laughs) keep you humble. Yeah, so yeah, (laughs) can do that. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about the top three most memorable undercover cases from his 29 years as a police officer Mm. and kind of how that intermingled with the rest of his life as well. So what's number one? What's our top case? Number one, probably most interesting or the one I had maybe the most fun with was a case where I posed as an Italian mobster for a year. I remember this. This was circa what year? This would have been 1999 to 2000. Okay. And what was your name in that case? Uh, Richie Giovanni. How'd you pick it? Uh, I was trying to come up with a name uh, for, um, and I'd always use the name Rick as my undercover name. So I tried to think of an Italian sounding one and we saw some uh, store or whatever with Giovanni on it. I said, that's good. And so then I made it Richie instead of Rick. So I'm Richie Giovanni. That's how we came up with it. And And I worked with my partner and my partner was my nephew and his name was Nick, Nick Giovanni. Why'd you choose Italian mobster? Why'd you go that route for an undercover case? Because uh, Sopranos was really popular right then on television. Okay. And every um, uh, every drug dealer that we would serve warrants at would have memorabilia from the mob and from, you know, those are the real guys everybody looks up to if you're on the other side. So you thought it'd be like an instant kind of nod of respect or yeah, like that's right. interest for the guys you're right. trying to arrest. And it was also, it was interesting for them to come meet uh, a real mobster because in Washington, we don't have white Italian mobsters that right. much. We have a few probably, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's probably why. Were other police officers in D.C. doing this kind of thing at this time? Or was this just like a far off idea you had to pose? No, this? no, I, I, it isn't really an idea I had either. I was up late one night after work and I was watching the Discovery Channel and there was a, a um, documentary mm-hmm. on this uh, case that D.C. police did uh, back in the 70s. Um, so 20 years earlier. And it was called Sting after the movie Sting, they called it. And in this one, uh, the cops posed as mobsters and came to Washington, and their names were, no kidding, Joey Bologna, uh, um, Tony Lasagna, uh, Joey Pizza. Frank, I mean, it was insane. And, and there's all these videos and how successful it was and how much the guys loved it in the city. I said, well, shoot, that hadn't happened in 20 years. We could do that. So I ran up to my commander's office, and I said, hey, what if we did this? Because he remembered it. And he said, uh, yeah. He said, I don't know if we can do something like that. And you were the one that said, yes, we can and we will. Yes. And a matter of fact, what I did was I went out and uh, found a place to do it in. And I rented it in my own name, which you didn't know that all of our, you know. Yes. So at this time, I was in elementary school, I guess. Right. Um, Yeah. You had three daughters at home. Yep. And uh, while we were doing extracurriculars and learning our multiplication 
multiplication tables, I guess you were out yeah. renting spaces in our name to buy drugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We rented that because I tried asking with the police department sign with the, and I knew that was never going to happen. That would have taken 20 years. So the general counsel, <clears throat> he didn't find out that I had signed my name until we were about six months into the case. And then he encouraged me to not do that anymore. But it was like, it's already in motion. <laughs> well, yeah, at that point, he was kind of already in, yeah. Did did your wife, my mother, know that it no, was in his... No, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay, no, okay. No, 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 She just knew I was doing this case, and she thought maybe I was pushing a little bit because I was kind of doing it secretly because uh, the police department was really busy on... You know, we had street arrests. We had stuff we had to do. And that was my unit right then. I was in the 5th District Vice Unit. So we're working in Northeast Washington, murders up, everything. And so we're out there trying to lock people up all the time. And I'm saying, no, we should stop and do this long-term undercover case. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so you got the space, then what? Take us through what you did, how you got set up, how you got cops to buy into it, how you so got the criminals in there. What, what First thing yeah. you have to do is you got to set the stage so that when people enter, they're totally convinced because otherwise it doesn't work. You must give people what they think uh, a mobster looks like. Do you follow me? Whatever I'm acting like, I have to give you what you think it's like, not what it is like. That doesn't matter. So if you, I watched Sopranos, I learned what clothes they wore. I, I, I ordered clothes. I borrowed clothes from friends of mine, high-end shirts. And then we got jewelry. So I wore all this gold jewelry from... Uh, uh, drug dealers that was seized by the police. And and then we got a desk and uh, we went to uh, a store that had a lot of uh, Catholic uh, uh, items. And we had like the Mother Mary on the table. And I had a picture of my grandfather who looked very Italian uh, behind me. And <clears throat> to top it off, we got a Rottweiler from one of the guys. And this Rottweiler was mean, mean, mean. And we would tie it to the desk. So when you would come in, the Rottweiler would be barking at you, and we I'd tell him, come, calm down, he's all right. And then sit down at my desk, and we would negotiate over the desk. I think that's really interesting. Like, I was thinking, did you consult with true Italians? But it was more important to do whatever they thought an Italian was like matters. than the true identity sure. of an Italian. I mean, you know, yeah, I talked to some of the guys. Uh, I definitely talked to other cops, like in New York and Philadelphia, who'd work with organized crime. Um, but... Really, what I did was watch TV. And that's what I always did, is, is to <laughs> try to figure out what I wanted to look like because I would do it more from TV than I did from reality, you know? So you rent the space, you get it all set up, yep. and then what, you call up criminals you know uh, nope. in? No, we call, we tell, talk to informants. So we talk to informants. What's an informant? An informant is somebody who is uh, willing to give information, kind of a double agent. They're out there in the street, maybe they're in crime or they're around drug dealers, around uh, murderers, robbers, and they're friends with robbers, stick up men and all that. And instead of them just doing that, they also are willing to give information to the police and it could be because they got locked up. It could be for different motivation. It can be because they want to clean up their neighborhood. We get that sometimes. But anyway, I talked to those folks. And you had to be very careful because you don't dare tell informants that we've got this fake, you know, mobster place if they're not really on your team. Right. Because all they got to do is go around the neighborhood and say, hey, the cops set up a mobster thing and I'm done for ever get started, you know. So how do you do that? You walk on eggshells with them? You try to pick the right ones that are really committed and are really in a jam where it helps them more than it helps us. Right. Because the way I look at it is, is then they got to explain, well, how would you know that? How, what are you talking to cops? How would you know that? So yeah. Is it a derogatory term to call them snitches? 
Yes, I think so. I mean, it's the street. That's what everybody calls. That's the but term I, I remember. But yeah, now yeah, it yeah. seems like informant is yep. welcomed. Uh, yeah, I don't know about welcome. I don't know anybody's too happy. They probably like uh, there's the FBI used to get really mad when we would say that. And they call them uh, cooperating, uh, cooperating witnesses, I think. CWs. Okay. okay. I think I remember that you were close to some of the informants. Like that's yeah. who you were on the phone with a lot. Like we'd be yes. together as a family and you'd be on the phone with an informant. <laughs> yeah. And that was, did you form true relationships with them? Or that was because yeah. you guys were always giving each other something for the Look, case. I worked with hundreds of informants over 29 years. Uh, and several of the guys I was able to share Christ with. Uh, several of them came to Christ. Uh, some of them are friends still today. Um, and uh, others, no, we, I didn't like them. They didn't like me. It was a, it was a, it was a relationship of, of, it was required by the court and I needed them. But once they were done, they were done. They never want to see me again. I never want to see them again. Right. Were you ever more fearful of what informants would yes. do to you than this the actual a, criminals you were? Some that is normally the way things go bad is the informant is the one who sets up. We had that happen once during my career where the uh, police undercover policeman got robbed and, and shot. And it was because the informant had set it up uh, to tell them, look, that guy's going to have a lot of cash and so on, set it all up. But to me, it didn't make a lot of sense. You'd have to be a really dumb informant because I mean, now you're in the middle of this thing. It's bad all the way around. Right. Because was this Richie Giovanni was during the time, maybe you can tell us about when you guys came home and there was a huge prank on our house. No, that was later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not this case. It was during this case. Yeah. So I was, I was playing like I was a mobster. And I must have said something to it when I was speaking at a youth group out in Virginia. So I said something about it. And uh, the kids uh, thought it was kind of funny. So they they um, put uh, like a dead fish on my doorstep. So I woke up to a dead fish at my front door. And uh, and also they did more of that on, a, on my car. And, uh, you know, you get in this mode where you're kind of paranoid anyway. You're driving all the time. You're trying to think. You want to make sure nobody follows you home. Occasionally, bad guys would come to cop's house and, and shoot at the house or something. Very rare. But anyway, you get a little paranoid in, in this line of work. And so I saw this one morning. I was like, wait a second. This is there any chance somebody's really, you know, knows where I'm at? I'm in trouble. And they wrote some notes or whatever. Anyway, it turned out it was a bunch of kids from youth group. Yeah, that was one of the only times I remember it coming so close to home that kind of our whole family was like, what is going on? <laughs> because it was directed towards yeah. the police side of you. So mm -hmm. although you were um, preaching and teaching to youth across the suburbs where we lived, you were in the inner city every day. And so it seemed like that cross paths at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were Richie Giovanni, you got the case going yeah. and then how'd it play out? Well, uh, one of the fun ones was we had this informant who's dead now, so I can talk about him. His name, um, this guy's name, uh, was, he was an Italian and he was our main guy. He was an old white Italian um, uh, criminal in Washington, D.C. He was the only guy, one of the few guys to ever really escape D.C. jail when he was a criminal wow. back in the 70s. He was known all over the city, but he was a heroin addict. And um, he ended up uh, telling us about some guys from Front Royal Luray area that would come up to get their drugs in, in Northern, excuse me, in D.C. And he met them and he said they want to sell guns. 
So he came to me. He brought these three country boys, literally hillbillies, into the into the studio and uh, they, not the studio. I'm sorry, into the office. It was a body shop type thing. And he came in and uh, met with us. And these three guys went on to sell us fully automatic firearms. Uh, told us how to shoot somebody and kill them, all this. But with these three country guys from, they would drive an hour, hour and a half every time to come sell to us. So they were your main clientele at the office. Well, main clientele is not right. We had, you know, 60 defendants by the end. But if you think of the ones that were the biggest cases within the case, you know, that they would have been, uh, they were pretty fun, to be honest. They would come in. I mean, it was hard not to laugh all the time uh, because they... They really thought different than I think, you know. And I didn't enjoy it all the time, to be honest with you. There was a lot of stress because I'm trying to get enough money. So I'll meet a defendant. The, the place is set up with this idea that we're going to be able to arrest guys that are uh, committing violent offenses because they're going to want to come in and I'm going to be trying to hire guys to shoot people for the mob, to uh, do stuff to join up with us, okay? Because I'm setting up in Washington, D.C., a new... Um, you know, headquarters for the mob. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm sick of Philadelphia. So I would walk around in a wife beater and a big cigar all the time and have this dog barking and have Nick, my buddy. And then I would have a big guy, big, huge guy on the front door coming into the place. So everybody that came in would get searched like in the movies uh, before they came in, which we liked because it also made sure the guy didn't have a gun when he entered the studio, you know. So anyway, we would set all that up with the idea that we were going to convince all the bad guys in Washington to trust me to talk about what they're doing, the crimes they're committing or trying to kind of prove a resume, you know. Like, look, I did this, I did that. And so uh, one of the things that happened on this was uh, we had a we had a young guy who had uh, we had a shooting where a kid had been shot uh, up on uh, O Street Northwest, and one of the guys that was selling us guns. We started out just saying, "Hey, which one to buy guns?" The guy comes in. We knew though he was a suspect in that shooting, and so I just asked him, like, "Would you join us? Would you help me?" Because I said, "In D.C., I got some of these guys driving me crazy. I need to have some some guns. I, I don't know anything about the city. I don't want to be out there. I want you guys to handle that. You're the and the big thing I will emphasize all the time to get them talking is." You're the tough guy, not me. So how do I know you've ever done this before? You know, everybody talks trash in the streets. So, you know, how do I know? And then he went through the details. Well, let me tell you how I know. This is exactly what I did. You can look it up in the paper. You know, bam. And so here I had a confession on a guy who had shot a kid uh, through the case. So you had video in the in the yeah, video in that there. could be used in court. The, the, and the fun part of the video was we had it like like here right behind us, and the FBI had set up this really cool fake closet. Uh, but the fun part was, so a guy had to, in those days there was not the uh, wire, so it was real wire like this, and it ran back, you know, and and so they're in there with a VHS uh, camera you know, and a VHS player. And they're in that back closet for as long as the, as the buy goes on sweating, like, I don't know what, there's not exactly air conditioning in there. And so we would get the officers who really bugged us the most and stick them in there and then try to keep the deal going longer. So they'd be suffering. Is that true? It's true. I believe yes. it's true. I believe <laughs> it's, it's true. true. Yeah. That's the sad part. Yes. It was really funny. Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize they were live with you. They had to be. Yeah. In those yeah. days, cause they had to pl play record and they couldn't then leave again. Right. And she didn't do that. And we didn't have remote way to do and it. And you always had someone else with you in there, another yeah. officer with you. Another officer. And then the cool part was we had a guy usually out in the bay, uh, you know, out in the bay. They're kind of lingering around. 
So how long does this case go on where you're just welcoming guys in, getting stories, getting confessions, getting guns? How long mm -hmm. is that going on? It went on and, 11 months. And what were you waiting for? How would you determine when that would be the end of it? Well, uh, I would have probably still been doing it. You know, I thought when you're the undercover, you think this is going really well. It finally works well. If they would just give me hundreds of thousands of dollars, I could get to know every bad guy in the city. And I could have. But the police department, the FBI, DA, ATF, all the guys we're working with, they're like, you got to wrap this up. This is too good. We got to tell our bosses about all these lockups we're going to make and all that. So they won. And yeah, so how'd you close it down? What was, how'd you well, make a Well, you rest? do two things. One is you try to find where the bad guys are at and you go to their houses. So the fun part of okay. this story is picture those hillbillies now down in Luray. They lived in what they call a hollow. They call it a holler. It's H-O-L-L-O-W. So it's okay. not a street. It's a hollow. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's real. It's like an alley, like a, like a dirt road going back into this. And they had their own little enclave back there. Wow. And uh, so they had ATF guys in the woods and all this stuff. And then we invited them to the studio, uh, not to the studio, to the uh, um, body shop, to the, to the place. And when they came in, uh, we locked them up that night. So we would come in, they would come in. We got lots of video of this. You would come in, we'd say to them, hey, let's get the drugs, whatever. We wouldn't lock them up right in the room. We'd say, okay, hey, uh, just walk downstairs and I'll meet you down there and give you the money. Or or I would walk out and they would come in and get locked up that way. That's what I remember videos of. You walk out and then everyone comes in and gets yeah. them. Now, what I remember watching those videos feeling a little bit sad for the for the defendants, for the criminals. How did you feel in those moments? Was that like... Okay, so I know this is all about me and everything, but how come you didn't care about me? I can't even care about me getting killed or hurt. Or, you weren't worried I, you about know, that at all. You are worried about the bad guys. I mean, there was a lot of police swooping in on them. <laughs> you don't think I was in any danger. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, truly, I, it actually makes a good point that yeah. there were three sisters, yes. me and two sisters, and they may have experienced a little more stress over it. I mm. never felt worried for you, you or you even watching the videos, yeah. nothing. Yeah, no. no big deal. <laughs> I yeah. just felt confident. You yes, were safe. Sure. You, oh, you know. yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. Okay, so what happened is, yes, there was time. Matter of fact, there was a girl in this case that I... You know, you feel really bad. She was very young, and 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 but she just kept pushing us to to do bigger and bigger amounts of drugs. And so, um, to be honestly, if I even look at the videos now, it's heartbreaking. I feel bad for her. She had a tough life, and yeah. and the good news is, I I hope that through this, it gave her a chance to turn. I, I don't know what's going yes, on yeah. I just saw a video of someone saying that jail changed their life, and you don't mm -hmm. always hear that, but that can be the case. Yep. What kind of uh, jail time did they get? How did that work out? Yeah. So uh, the guys who, um, like the guys, the three hillbilly guys, it was very frustrating. Um, it is really true, uh, at least then, that in our jurisdiction, the prosecutor's office, I always felt like, was softer on uh, Caucasians than they were on African-Americans. Mm -hmm. African-Americans were largely what our uh, city is. And when a, when a Caucasian came in, I don't know. The case just didn't end up in the same place. We would argue about this quite a bit. But anyway, the main guy, he had already committed, had already been to jail for seven years. So wow. he, he went to prison. Uh, and I just saw since then he just died. Um, but, then, but then the other two, they gave him like probation and so wow. on, which I'm telling you, if you were from... You know, Barry Farms over in Southeast, and you were selling me machine guns. There was no chance you were getting that. 
I mean, I, right. granted, they didn't have a record or whatever, but uh, I always, it was a little uneven, you know? A little unjust. Yeah, mm. for sure. Um, and then what happened after the case, as far as like you were saying, all the officers wanted to tell, you know, their superiors about it. Was there accolades, recognition? What did the city yeah. think of it? So the same police department that was driving me crazy during the whole case, bugging me to close it and don't spend so much money. And why are you doing this? You need to get back to the street. When it came uh, time to report it to the news media, man, they all showed up and they were <laughs> applauding and happy. And yeah, they were the chief. Oof, so good. Everyone claimed it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody. ATF said it was theirs, uh, FBI, uh, MPD, everybody was thrilled. Yes, and I'm interested in how that connects to other cases of how they approved in the future, which we'll get to on, on future episodes. But also that taps into, you were very openly a man of faith and mm. had to practice so much um humility and whatever, all these things, yeah. even anxiety, all these inducing places. How did you carry out in this case, kind of being a man of faith and being this cop in this setting? I think the biggest thing really is not as dramatic as it might seem. So what I mean is that um, humility, uh, I don't even know if I ever was very humble. So I mean, I hope so, but <laughs> I don't know. But any more than any other guy who's working and doing well or a girl working and doing well, it, there were good things happening at this point. And so I got some attention. So certainly there, you know, you have to keep in mind. But the big thing I would say is trying to live for Christ among my peers. That was the hardest part of it is I wanted to reach those guys. Um, and so that was the hardest, just like everybody else, every truck driver, every lawyer, every doctor, it's, it's living for Christ among your closest friends. Cause you got to remember we were spending 16 hours a day together. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. A little different in your case. Cause you're uh, in a profession with so much lying and cheating lying and, and yeah, and acting crimes. and crime and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's end with this, uh, three questions. Mm -hmm. What would you tell a cop looking back on this time of life that you would speak to a cop now? What would you tell a criminal and what would you tell a Christian? Hmm. Okay. I would tell a cop, um, be creative, uh, think out of the box and come up with ideas, uh, that you can catch bad guys in ways others haven't tried. That's a good one. What would okay. you tell a criminal? I would tell criminals, um, d don't wait for something bad like this to happen. Um, realize that every everything is against you. You've got an army of officers, the government against you. You've got prosecutor officers against you. And you've got informants in your community right there around you. Everybody does. You use them, we use them. So the criminals use them too. So uh, it's just not, it's it's the losing team. Yeah. You, you, it's really hard to succeed. So I would say get out and turn to Christ while you still can. That's really what my message is. Right. The, the, th the third one was? Uh, what would you tell a Christian? So the Christian is, um, uh, if I can live for Christ in this environment, um, it gives you hope, I think, that uh, you can uh, fight uh, to keep God's perspective and get the gospel out, the word of God, the hope of God to people in every environment around you. Don't let anything seem restrictive. The hope of Christ works for the cop, the criminal, and the Christian. Perfect. I think that was great um, hearing about that case is Richie Giovanni and kind of your experience through it and kind of bringing it to life for all of us who are not in that world. So thank you for sharing and we will be back next time.